Hello and welcome to another episode of the Modern House podcast. My name's Matt Gibbard and I'm co-founder of the design-led estate agency The Modern House. In this series, I talk to people we admire about how thoughtful design within the home can enhance your life and ultimately make you happier. Each guest chooses their three favourite living spaces, anything from a crenellated castle to a shingled shack, and we discuss the timeless design principles that make them so successful. Today I'm joined by a legend of the fashion industry, Lucinda Chambers. Lucinda worked at British Vogue for 36 years, including 25 of them as fashion director. She's been a creative consultant for Prada and Marnie, and nowadays she heads up the sustainable fashion label Colville and the e-commerce website Collagerie. I think the first thing I'd love to know about is your your upbringing and your, your relationship with home when you were a child, because you moved house a lot, didn't you? So tell us about that. Well, my father was very much a workaholic and we never saw him at weekends or we never went on holiday with him. So it felt very much, you know, it was the three of us, my brother and, and uh, my mother and I, and my sister was much more grown up. But we did lots of things to make money. But uh, one of the things that she did that was serious to pay the school fees, which she thought were important, was that we moved every 18 months, but only on page 58 of the A to Z. So it was sort of... <laughs> <laughs> which is where? Well, walking distance between the Bompton Oratory, because she was never not doing a novena for paying for our exam results to come through, and uh, Harrods. Not okay. that we were buying from Harrods, but we we always went to Harrods with a tape measure in our pocket, and I would try on all the clothes... And we would then go to a fabric shop, usually in the Edgware Road, and we would copy what we had measured up in Harrods. So, you know, she made school uniforms. I used to sew on the buttons. But we did move every 18 months. So they, it was always kind of an incredible area. You know, it was Knightsbridge. We always lived in Cheney Walk or we lived in Princess Gate Mews or we lived in Ovington Square or we lived in Cadogan Square. They were incredible. They were just spaces that she could work on and it wasn't just a question of you know titivation it was you know she took down walls she built full ceilings I mean she was amazing and then we did have a stint in the country and she made dry stone walls and you know she completely changed spaces in a way that I could never do she could see how you know stairs would look back to front and if you took out that top floor and made it yeah amazing so, so if if you if you've moved that often as a child, what does that do to your sense of home and your sense of place? Then, never wanting to move. <laughs> Is that right? Well, I I've never really thought about it in any, but but you know the fact is, my husband and I have not moved. Yeah, you know we 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 haven't moved from this house for thirty five years, so it's layers and layers of sort of memories and. Uh, but actually, oddly, I'm not really very sentimental. I think I've gone through periods of being afraid of that move and afraid of change. Now I don't feel that. My mother continued to do that for the rest of her life. And what she did, which I thought was really interesting, was every time she moved, she gave away more of her possessions. So she ended up where she wanted to end up, where she intended all along to end up, which was in a convent in South Kensington in one room with a Mac computer and three paintings that she loved, that she was going to give each of her children when she died. That's exactly what she did. That's and she amazing. was a yeah, and she was a huge collector of stuff. She was a huge kind of vintage market shopper. So she had a lot of stuff, you know, but little by little, I think from her 
mid-50s, when she built a studio in Oxford and bought her house, she began to see this other future for herself, which was to just divest uh, all her worldly possessions. You know, I can see myself ending up, as my, as in fact my mother did, in a very sparse situation with light and and a view. And the thing that I always think about the modern house is why it's so spectacular and has so much kind of soul in a way, because it is about that. It's about light, living and views. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's what's good for the soul at the end of the day, not clutter and stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, so how did you get into fashion from your background? Well, we loved clothes. My mother was mad about fashion. And um, we both went to art college at the same time. I mean, she was 58 and I was 18. So we fashioned a portfolio on the kitchen table each. I think it sort of involved knitting wool and pasta shells, possibly. It was pretty blank. <laughs> <laughs> but we got in. I mean, I got into Hornsey, which was like at that time, you know, they were more sitting in out than they were doing any you know, as they called it, meaningful marks on paper. Yeah. Um, and my mother my mother really needed to learn a skill. So she went to London College of Printing and learned to be a bookbinder. And then she discovered how to marble papers. And she then went on to write 10 books for Thames and Hudson and lecture all around the world in her 60s and 70s. But I did start to make jewellery out of perspex just to make a bit of pin money. And then I bought a Black & Deco and started to do that in my bedroom and had a stall on uh, Camden Market and sold it to a few shops around and then a pair of earrings got into a magazine it was a free magazine called Miss London it was honestly like a sort of light bulb I yeah. couldn't believe Matt that something I had touched let alone made and they were pretty hideous actually worked their <laughs> way in retrospect worked their way into a magazine and I just suddenly thought I really want to be part of want to know what that process is those steps to ending up making a picture so I thought, I'm going to just do everything I can. So I worked in Topshop and I worked in anything to do with fashion. I made costumes for the Edinburgh Fringe. And and then I rung up Vogue in my lunch hour one day at Topshop saying, could I come and see you? And luckily I got hold of the personnel officer. And she said, yeah, if you can come now, I'll give you a quick interview. <laughs> and, I, and the first question they asked me is, who do you know here? Really? And I, went, and I went, yeah. And I went, nobody. And they went, what, you don't know anybody? Like with a name like Lucinda and a voice like yours. I was like, no, I don't, I don't know anybody in fashion. And and they said, you've never sat behind a desk. You've got to go and do a secretarial course and then come back. But we like you, you know. And um, so I rushed home that evening and we bought a book of how to type a business letter. And I practiced and practiced and rung her back three weeks later. I said, I think I can do a business letter. And she gave me a job. And she she wound me up. She said, it's the, it's the worst job in the building, but it's a footing. <laughs> and it was. What were you doing then? Secretary to the petty cash woman. <laughs> brilliant. It's brilliant. I worked at Condé Nast myself at World of Interiors for five or six years. Oh, my gosh. And um, I had actually a pretty similar introduction. I, I wrote a letter to the editor and just said, you know, I'm basically free labour if you need it. <laughs> You've just got to be amenable and helpful and useful, I think. Yeah, don't, don't I don't think? think that has changed, actually. No. I mean, what I'm really pleased has changed is and it was one of the first things I did actually when I became fashion director was I don't want to see a CV that starts she's the godchild she's the niece she's the cousin yeah, she's really pretty and I just said that's got to stop and we've got to start interviewing graduates and people who have done a course in fashion but uh you know having said that actually it was really full of characters at that time probably 
you know, much earlier than when you started. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was it like? Describe were, it to us. I mean, you were there. Oh, for... rackety. Really Ra- rackety. Rackety. <laughs> rackety. I mean, really interesting individuals, actually. Like, you know, I remember Rachel, actually, I thought of her the other day, Rachel Gould, you know, writer, sitting with her legs up on her desk, features writer, you know, with the gulwars hanging out of her mouth, going, no, nah, I don't want to write that, not interested in that. And um, <laughs> Drusilla Bafus, Alexander Shulman's mum, was features editor, really amazing woman. I mean, Beatrix Miller was the editor. She was incredible. My cubicle that I sat, it was at that time full of sort of stud partitions and it was sort of open at the top. And my boss, God knows how much money she saved God in us because she wouldn't let me use Tipex. I had to rub everything out, all my mistakes with a rubber. And I was a smoker. So she went out for lunch and I lit up a cigarette and she came back in. She'd forgotten something. And I threw my cigarette over the partition, the stud partition, and it landed on the assistant to the editor's desk. <laughs> and Miss Davis, the petty cash woman, went out and Ingrid Bleichroder came in holding the cigarette. And I'd never met her. I'd never been let out of the cubicle. And I'd made all my own clothes. I looked like a freak, you know. I, I was dressed in tutus most of the time, <laughs> which would sort of fall apart on each day on, sort of five o'clock. But anyway, Ingrid came and said, is this yours? And I went, okay, I'll just pack up my things now. I'm clearly fired. I'm so sorry. I'm so ashamed. You know, luckily, she was a smoker. <laughs> she said... This is the funniest thing that's ever happened. She said, have you met the editor? And I was like, no, I don't even know what she looks like. Uh And she said, I think you should meet her. We're looking for a secretary for her. And so Beatrix Miller interviewed me and she said, you've got a lot of furniture in your head, darling, and we're going to work to get it all out and we're going to work to get it organised and you can be my secretary. I was terrible, terrible. (laughs) I was... So how how did you get from there to being the fashion director for 25 years, I think it was? <laughs> I know, it's a weird thing. Well, um, I worked for Beatrix with, well, Miss Miller, as she was always known, for four or five years. And I had my own filing system. You know, if there were letters for Tony Snowden, Lord Snowden, I'd file them under T for Tony. I, w- I was like the original Bubbles. <laughs> um, but somehow she hung on in there with me. And actually, during that time, I'd always volunteered to do anything at the weekends to do with Vogue. Like, if it was selling the magazine at Olympia, there was a trade show there, I would sell the magazines. You know, I lived in a squat with a lot of people. That was amazing sort of saving. And I began to kind of make friends in the fashion world. And one of them was Mario Testino. Another one was Wendy Dagworthy, who is a designer. I think after about two years, Grace Coddington said, I want her to be my assistant. And I think because... I just looked so weird. I think, you know, it was, you know, a bit to have a laugh, really. Um, make the day go with the swing. <laughs> See what Lucinda's wearing today. Anyway, um, that was amazing. And I really learned everything from Grace. And she had such a particular way of looking at the world. I mean, she had no kind of formal education. So she looked at everything as if it was the first time, like, you know, a book on Matisse or a book on Fragonal and uh, invent a story around it. Yeah, so I was her assistant for a long time and um and then yes, and then worked my way up, you know, and it was it was a long time and then I actually I got a really lucky break. So I went to Elle and became fashion director and then was asked back to Vogue. And then when Alex took over, she asked me to be fashion director and actually I loved it. It's amazing. <laughs> I loved it. No, absolutely. I mean, can you tell us any highlights in terms of the shoots that you did while you were there? Gosh. Well, I loved every shoot I did. I, I felt they were all kind of learning curves. I never I never stopped learning any, you know, shoots I do now. You know, somebody said, what's your favourite shoot? And I always say, no, next one I'm doing. But I think we had some incredible times. I mean, in a way that will probably never happen again. And the 
the travel was extraordinary. The countries that I went to, the places that I visited, people that we met, um, the photographers that I worked with, you know, just really unbelievable, actually, the range. And most of my shoots, because I'm lucky enough to choose the people that you surround yourself with, mm. you find your tribe, you know, and they can be all sorts of different kinds of people, mm. but willing to be collaborative and take the punt and, you know, jog along. Only two years ago, you started your own fashion brand, didn't you? Colville. Why do that? Yeah. Why do that now after all the time? Why not? I mean, yeah. I had always worked for brands. I mean, I, I worked for Prada and stayed there for nine years and saw a company very, very close up how it grew stratospherically. But, you know, organically, out of passion. Yeah. And then, and I was doing Prada and Jill Sander, working for two really amazing women. You know, Jill was still at Jill Sander and Mutia was at, obviously as at Prada. And when I became fashion director, I had to stop all that and really concentrate and focus on Vogue. But then immediately, six months later, I had an idea and, and we started Marnie. Right. And we grew this very, very successful company. But I always said I didn't really like ultimate responsibility. and But I had such a fantastic team at Marnie when they sold it. The head of my team was Molly Malloy, who was incredible. Molly and Chris, who was head of menswear, said, we're going to start a company. Would you, would you come on board? And I was like, why not? It was like, I was not afraid of responsibility anymore. You know, I think quite a big thing had happened to me that I lost the job that I loved. So in a way, it was kind of an amazing sort of shift that there was nothing to be afraid of. Now with the two companies, I mean, my absolute heart and soul is in Collagerie, which is our our website. And I absolutely love having my own company because it's just the most incredible learning curve. Tell us about Collagerie then. Collagerie really came about because of loving a mix of high and low. You know, you save up for that fabulous piece from Too Good, you know, a beautiful white coat that's going to last you until you're 85 and you love it and you fall in love with it. But you're going to wear, you know, a Zara black shirt underneath it and then you're going to wear a pair of trainers that, that you've lusted after for the last two years or whatever. It's that mix, putting luxury next to high street, next to a niche brand that you've discovered, but also being as passionate about interiors it's all about decoration, really, I think, at the end of the day. So well, that, um, that, that, that brings me on then to your first choice of living space that you've made, which is your own house in France. So just describe what that place looks like. Whereabouts is it in France? Well, it's in the middle of a field, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of um, Tarn-et-Garonne, which is southwest France. You know, and mm. France is a blooming huge place. So it's really in the middle of nowhere. And... It's very rural and very agricultural, and it's like a cottage. Somebody described it as a TARDIS because it actually can sleep 10 people, which makes it sound rather grand. It's not. It, from the front, it looks like a little bungalow, almost like a child's drawing with a, with a door and two windows either side. And then you go in. It was a farmhouse. So what's so fascinating, what I love about it is the farmer and his wife and his children, they lived in the front part. So the front part is a bit smarter, and then you go back and that's where all the cattle were kept and where all the attics are and and it, it's not smart it doesn't look any great shakes from the outside it's it's not grand 
and it's late 18th century. Um, it's got a big garden, trees, very quiet, and it yeah, it means quite a lot to me actually for various different reasons. But the way we bought it was funny. We were at supper with a friend of mine, and I asked about this couple, Cindy and Richard, who we knew really well. And I said, oh, I haven't heard from them. And they said, oh, well, they're selling their house in the south of France. And I said, oh, are they? And I used to have a little shop called Swallows and Amazons years and years ago, like 35, 40 years ago. And we sold all holiday stuff, sort of Kiskin before Kiskin. And, um, and I remember Cindy coming there and saying, I'm going to buy this for our house in Toulouse because there's a blue and white room. And I remember thinking... You know how those things, Matt, just somebody says something and it just mm. lands with you, but you don't take any notice of it. And I, and I remember it landing, oh, blue and white room in Toulouse. That sounds so lovely. <laughs> anyway, when I said to Jeannie, they're selling it, I said, what's it like? And she said, oh, it's a bit funky and rustic. I said, has it got a pool? And she said, yeah. And they were selling everything in it. Every, the car, the paintings on the wall, the flip-flops on the floor, the hats on the chair. They just were going to lock the door and walk away. So that's how I sold it to my husband. I said, we won't have to get a thing for it. It's ready to go. And the next day we flew down and saw it. And I had made up my mind in my head that whatever it was like, you know, it just sounded so lovely. And it was lovely. I think that really resonates with me with the modern house hat on. What we see in a way is that, is that people can fall in love with actually even a single photograph of a house. I'm sure this will resonate with you, where you, you just imagine your life in a certain way. And, and that's that's what you're describing. You just you imagine that carefree blue and white life and the word to lose. And that, that was it. You had nothing yeah. to lose. From what you've shown me of the house, there are a lot of hats on the walls. Why are there so many hats? <laughs> well, everybody wears different hats because it is, you know, luckily the weather is kind of amazing. And uh, we have a lot of people to stay and it's usually the same people. And what I really like, Matt, and I think you'll understand, is that it's like a commune there in a sense that I don't feel ownership of it necessarily. I feel it's a place where, I haven't thought about this, but it's it's a place where you can give somebody very good experiences of friendship and children growing up over there. I mean, my children love it, and we thought about selling it recently and they were like horrified and and actually it was so inexpensive to buy and you've laid down sort of almost like ley lines of you know the same people come summer after summer after summer and they all and in fact some of them dear friends of ours who actually I was thinking so much about the modern house um because they live on a prefab bungalow on a beautiful plot of land that they bought um but they come and they often come before we go and they've chucked out any cushions that they don't like, usually involving a flower, and they've, <laughs> you know, they've rearranged the furniture, <laughs> and they've, and they feel it's as much their house. I think they are actually going to think that I'm going to leave it to them in their will, and I, you know, <laughs> um, but I don't know. It's just given a lot of people a lot of pleasure over mm. the years, and I think mm. if a house can do that, mm. um, yeah. Sorry, not on, going very much meandering from your question about why the hats on the walls because they belong to other people and people buy them and then leave them there and put them up on their wall. And actually, I must remember to do this next summer if we're allowed out, which is to I want everybody to write their signatures. So because the hat is so synonymous with that person. So do they, um, when they arrive, do they put their hat on? Is that they put their hat on? They put their hat on, and it's incredible. And people, I think, feel very 
relaxed in it and it's easy to get to it. So like an hour away from the airport, but you're in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Wi-Fi is patchy, so it never feels to me like a workplace. It has only, well, I was going to say pleasurable. I think the best of times have happened there and the worst of times, funnily enough. I mean, I was there when I heard, when my brother rung to tell us that he was terminally ill and I was with my mother at in France. And I was there when actually my mother's convent rung to say that she was just about to die. So I raced back. So it's a bit sort of, I picked up a bird's nest the other day and it's almost like you weave these, the fabric of your life, you know, into places that they have these very, very, they sort of hold the memories of incredible times, of course, because it's about holidays and it's about enjoyment, it's about relaxation, it's about being f with friends, it's about cooking, a lot of cooking. But it's also been involved with very, very sad times and it's sort of held us in a, in a funny way. Um, so it means a lot to me, that that house. Yeah, I can see that. In terms of the way that it's decorated, it's very Lucinda. <laughs> and, and, I, and I mean that in the sense that it's very decorative. I think the way that you approach colour and texture and pattern is quite maximalist, re relatively unusual. But you know, the way that you would layer lots of stripes on top of each other or where does that sensibility come from? I don't know. In a funny way, I have a lot of stuff, but weirdly, I'm not materialistic. If mm. things get broken, I'll make get all the shards, put them in a bag, crush them and make a mosaic table out of them or do, you know, I don't decorate a room or gather things together with any game plan in mind. I'm very un... Unstrategic. Un <laughs> yeah, I'm, I wish I was more strategic. I... I and also when I put something somewhere, it usually stays there. I mean, I do fiddle around. I guess what I don't do is I don't create rooms to make an impression. Mm. I'm, I, I sort of decorate for comfort, right. if I'm honest. I you know, the layers of stripes are there because there's a stripy blanket because I think that person, when they're watching telly, might be a bit cold. So there's a blanket to hand in order to make them feel all wrapped up and cosy. Um, like sometimes I'll lie on the bed in a spare room to make sure it's as cosification as it possibly can be because I know that a friend is going to stay there and I want to know what they're experiencing and I want to know, not that it's beautiful, but that it's comfortable. You'd be a good so, hot hotelier, wouldn't you? You'd be the person that tries out every room. <laughs> I would. I would try out every room. But then I don't know. I I, I, I would have to choose the people. I, I think I wouldn't be good with, with random... Well, I probably would be good with random people. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't think I'm that giving. But... Um, <laughs> I love people coming in and, and making it their own and, and rejigging it the way they want to rejig it and using it. You know, I've got lots of hammocks, but not the sort of hammocks that you kind of fall out of or that sort of wrap you up like a banana. But, you know, hammocks that kind of work, you know, <laughs> that have got big cushions on them. That <laughs> Everything has to work. But with the decoration, I love everything. I'm really unfussy, I have to say. I'm not um, – I wish I was a bit more hard-nosed and a bit more <laughs> – defined you know but I love stripes I love pattern I love I love Moroccan I love things from all over the world I like you know I've collected stuff from all my travels I get rid of a lot of stuff I mean things you know if they're broken or they don't work anymore I'm not materially attached to them and as I get older I like less but I mean we've got a great thing at, at Collagerie we say the one thing over everything mm. and also one of our biggest things is it's not how much you buy, it's how much you love what you buy. 
um, which is also another really good reason for doing doing the website. It is about that. It's about sifting through everything and making a really good curation of things that were lost and that you will love. So, yeah, the decoration thing, there's no game plan. I have to say I never go into a room thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to make, do it all like that. It's ever-evolving. It just evolves all the time. But I do lust after your, you know, when I look at the modern house and I look at, oh my gosh, I was on it the other day and there was this bungalow that had a chimney in the middle of it and the whole front was open and it had a lawn. And I mean, it, and yes, you're absolutely right, Mash. It's incredible what you say because when you look at the pictures in the modern house, it isn't just a picture of a house. It's a whole way of life mm. that you either want to achieve or you dream about or you know that's impossible mm. or that's not right for now but could be for later it's uh it's so emotive mm. it's never about bricks and mortar is it for you and i think your all your houses they all feel emotive in some way mm. but that's your curation well it's what your career has been defined by as well it's actually the power of photography is a remarkable thing you know, people approach us quite regularly and say, I do these really clever 360 degree tours of houses. You know, why don't you implement that on your website? And we say, because there's nothing romantic about that whatsoever. You know, yeah. actually a beautiful photograph of a house in its context or of the way that the light is falling across a particular exactly. corner of a room is so evocative it's all you need. I think as a human being, you you just look at that and you say, well, that's where I need to you be. You respond. Yeah. 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 Which, Light and view. Yeah. Light and view. Which I think yeah. brings us to your, your next choice, which is called Trasiera, which is in Andalusia in southern Spain. And it's a 16th century private mm. home, isn't it, that's also a hotel. So exactly. Tell us exactly. about that. Well, I came across it on a shoot and it was the sort of hotel that you could only kind of dream about and I didn't really know it existed which is a wonderful woman and I've got to know her called Charlotte Scott she wanted to open a hotel that had no check-in no minibar no tvs no phone as much like a private house as you possibly could get with guests uh with paying guests and she's done it she's done it and it's incredible it's the sort of place you can go with friends or you can go on your own or you can go with one person, lover, whatever, your husband. It's now like a, a very small, beautiful village. So there's lots of white buildings. So it's in the most incredible part of Spain as well. You fly to Seville, which is the most, you know, I love, oh, it's, absolutely it's love Seville. It's my favourite place, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So that's already a bonus. And it's about uh, an hour and a... It's about an hour and three quarters away from Seville. She only has about 10 to 15 guests and it sounds a bit elitist, and actually it's not a fortune. But when you go there, everybody leaves everybody alone. You could be alone or you can join in, and that's what I love about it. You could do yoga, you could do horse riding, you could do painting, you could have a lovely massage, the food's amazing. If you open a bottle of wine, you write it in a book. There's no, you know, waitressing, there's no waiters. It's as casual as you can possibly be, and it's in an incredible setting. And Charlotte works so hard on it, and so do her kids. And her son, Jackson, plays the flamenco guitar amazingly. And then you go there, and at lunch, you know, you sit round a table with all the other guests. And 
I love that. I love the randomness that you are at the, like, the best dinner party in town, but you haven't chosen anybody. So really interesting people go there. And I think it's almost like a good restaurant that you kind of want to keep it secret, but you also want to share it. But I have to say, I've always wanted to share La Trasiera because Charlotte and her family just work so damn hard and make it so brilliant. And then in winter, it's beautiful because it's got this huge room and a roaring fire that's massive and you curl up on a sofa and you play dominoes or card games and it's just the most relaxing, indulgent place. And I went there sometimes when I had a difficult period in my life. I thought, where do I want to go on my own? And I immediately thought of Trasiera. It's the most welcoming, welcoming place and every room is different there's like a huge roll-top bath in the middle of a room or there's a, another room with a beautiful terrace. It's it's terribly romantic. Um, it looks like a lot of and, whitewashed walls and a, a bit, of, yeah. bit of chintz mixed in as well. Yeah, yeah. It's just cosification again, yeah. Is that your ideal aesthetic then? Do you think, you, you know... No. No. Just one of them. Just one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. What What's it like being a guest in someone's home, though? Do, do you, you like that? I hate it. it. You hate it? I hate it. hate it. Hate it. But isn't that what that is? is that yes, not, but, yeah. but without any of the... When I stay with other people... I mean, there are a few people I stay with that uh, I love because I know them so well and I've stayed there so often. But it would take a lot to get me to go away for the weekend. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not because... I mean, God, I've, you know, people live in, you know, amazing places, but... I'm not good at that thing of lying in bed first thing in the morning thinking, do I go down and just help myself to a piece of toast? Or, you know, is there a lock on the loo? Or is there, you know, yeah. I'm not, that makes me sound neurotic, but I just, yeah, I love traveling and staying away. I'm a total experience junkie. You know, I love mm. new experiences, but I don't think I'm very good at being on somebody else's watch. Yeah. Well, I think we all have our natural rhythms, don't we? And And kind of what you're describing is, You've woken up early and you, you quite like the idea of getting on with your day, but you, you kind of can't in someone else's yeah. house. So you're, yeah. you're quite beholden to their rhythm, aren't you? Yes, I, I mean, suppose so. I, I always think that when you have, you know, we've got young children and if you stay with another family who have quite a different time clock, uh, you know, maybe their kids go to bed a lot later or yeah. whatever it might be. It's quite tricky. Well, you'd either have to roll with the punches and roll, roll, go with the flow yeah, or just not go. Or just not go, exactly. <laughs> like it. Um, so let's move on to your third and final choice of space, which is a treehouse by the Japanese artist Tadashi Kawamata. So for those people listening who don't know about Kawamata, what does he do? Well, he's an extraordinary man. He's Japanese. He lives between Paris and um, Tokyo. And I remember probably first seeing his work when the Serpentine Gallery, I think it was in the late 90s, hadn't been sort of built as it, as we know it now. And he did this wooden construction. So most of his things are out of reclaimed or recycled or repurposed. Uh, balsa wood, corrugated metal, chairs, uh, everything is recycled. And he was he's done that, you know, practically from the beginning. Or balsa wood, which actually is new. But um, And he makes these extraordinary... It's as if a human made a bird's nest. <laughs> out of wood and he layers them and constructs them in such a beautiful, light, incredible way 
that they either wrap themselves or they pour themselves around whatever he's doing. So, for instance, you know, at the Pompidou Centre, they were sort of poured around, around those huge kind of pipes or he's made incredible tree houses, which is why I chose him. You know, he made one in the middle of Madison Square Garden um, that was on a sort of monolith. And then he he's done some in France, you know, within a forest. And when I was growing up, my absolute favourite book, which I read over and over and over again, was Stick of the Dump. Oh, yeah. Stick of the Dump and the Secret Garden, just like... I couldn't really get into Narnia, but Stick of the Dump to me was... Because ever since I was a child, I remember my earliest memories were in Cadogan Square. I didn't want to play with anybody else. I wanted to make a house where nobody could see me in the in the undergrowth. <laughs> and that's what I used to do and find anything that would make a table or chairs or... I just loved building dens, you know. Building dens and playing with dolls. That's just a sort of... I've just, I think I've been building dens and playing with dolls all my <laughs> life, actually. I just suddenly realised that, actually. Yeah. I just realised that. Um, so his work, I think, is... It's poetic and it's beautiful and it's symbolic and it's where I would love to live in a fantasy, in a treehouse. I mean, that's why I love the modern house, because I think... I think I always used to look at the modern house and think it's a fantasy. And as I'm growing older, I'm thinking that's not just a fantasy. That could be a that could be a reality. <laughs> you know, it really could be. And the other day I was doing some gardening and I found this perfect bird's nest. And it had woven into it bits of shoelace that I recognised <laughs> of a shoe. Oh, really? Obviously the fox are played with. Yeah. And then it had like a bit of plastic in it. And... I thought, this is such a beautiful construct, you know, what would be the closest thing? So I thought of Karamash's work and I thought, that's as closest thing as a bird's nest that one could get. And I just urge people to have a look at his work. You know, he, he piles up chairs and, you know, for things that are in um, museums, you know, he'll do this stack of chairs. But the the lightness of touch, you know, the things that he's made out of wooden pallets, for instance, are, they're just incredible. They're just... Um, yeah, they strike a very emotional chord. They're, they're beautifully constructed and they're all tonal. You know, they're all mm. wood or metal. Um, and you just feel how he lays the layers on and, and makes these shapes that feel very organic in a way, but but they're constructed by his hand. Uh, anyway, I just think his work is incredible. Do you know his work? I Matt? do. I, th I think I agree. There's, it's very poetic, isn't it? I, I think you described it well in the sense that it, it's very childlike of course it's about the basics of shelter isn't it fundamentally our, yeah, our home exactly. is, is a shelter at, at its basic level and it makes you want to get a mini mag light and a midnight feast and go and sit in it doesn't it <laughs> totally. totally ultimately you know it, yeah. it, it, it appeals to that child in all of us I think a, a yeah. tree house yeah. and also yeah. there's something about timber as a material don't you think as well the natural warmth of that natural material yes. that yes. comes through Yes, and also the, the, the sort of ley lines of what it's been used as. And, mm. you know, I love something that's, you know, had a life and then it's got another life of something different and then it'll have another life, you know, going on from you. And I think that's... Uh, I love objects like that that are, you know, built to last but can have millions of different permutations in their in different lives, really. I really like that sense. Where would your treehouse be then? Oh, gosh. I didn't think of that, but 
off the top of my head. Well, somewhere, preferably with water, but not open, I think. I'd like it to be amongst, I'd like it to probably to be in a wood with some sort of water. It could be still water, I think. It could be a lake. Gosh, yes. Do you know when he builds bridges, he sometimes builds two con- constructions that have this very fragile bridge that links the two. And actually he's done he's done a beautiful sort of platoon that goes out in a lake that's fantastic. So if I was really greedy, imagine if I could have two things, <laughs> I would have this tree house that kind of then had a wibbly wobbly bridge leading onto the bridge that would lead into the water. Oh my God. Can you okay. find something like that for me? We'll, we'll let you have that. We'll let you have that. <laughs> I think that's a great place to finish, Lucinda. I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, me too. Thank, Thank you, you so much for asking Thank me, Matt. You. That was a total excellent. pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. To keep up to date with new episodes, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show today, we'd love it if you could leave us a quick review to help other people find us too. You can find images of the spaces we talked about today on our website, themodernhouse.com. This episode was produced by Caroline Hughes and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective.